feels like I'm a translator a lot of times um, because as much as, you know, we say America, we're all together, which is true, but culturally it's a lot of different cultures. And even though even people that speak the same language aren't really speaking the same language. You're listening to Wild Style, the producer, our guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. Hello, friends. Welcome to Michael Loves Indie, episode one, featuring Wildstyle, the producer. Before I get into the bio of our guest, Wildstyle, today, for those of you who don't know him already, I did want to say a word about why I'm doing this show. I just feel really blessed that as part of my day job at Indie Chamber and also playing and producing music and just being a fan of music in this city, I get to have a lot of really interesting conversations with a wide range of people. And I just wanted to record some of those conversations for posterity, even if no one listens to them except for me. So anyway, thank you for being here. Um, Today's guest is Wildstyle, the producer, also known as Keith Pashal. If you're a fan of Indianapolis hip-hop, it's very likely that you know him already. He's an accomplished hip-hop producer. He's quite prolific. Um, His best-known artist that he works with is Pope Adrian Bless. He also is... Um, an accomplished photographer, and his work uh, photographing Indianapolis hip-hop scene has been featured recently at the Indianapolis Airport Authority and many other places around Indianapolis. He also is a community organizer and a community advocate. He is a um, an ambassador for Central Indiana Community Foundation, where his job is really to represent marginalized communities and help you know people like myself in the business community and and others in the mainstream develop real relationships with people in marginalized communities. He is a very outspoken critic on social media. So some of you listening, I know what you're thinking. He is critical of politicians. He has frequently been critical of me and the organization that I work for. And you know, um, we've developed a relationship and I've learned from it. We agree on a lot of stuff. We disagree on some things, but I've been very positively impacted by this relationship. He's helped me see a lot of things uh, differently. He's helped me understand a lot about race in Indianapolis and race in America. He's done writing and research for the national organization New America, and I highly recommend his piece, The Ethnic Cleansing of Indiana Avenue, which argues that decisions by the city and by the business community had a part in decimating a once great community on and around Indiana Avenue. It's thought-provoking stuff, but the thing I appreciate about him is he's always willing to sit down and have a conversation. We recorded it in early March, and I know this is right before COVID hit, and I know it feels like that was years and years ago, but I still wanted to put it out there because we cover a wide range of topics, and he's definitely someone that I'm going to want to have back for another recorded conversation. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wildstyle, the producer. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for um, having me. There's so much I want to ask you today, um, and I, but I think it. I think I'd like to start with um, 
your musical life because that's a way that a lot of people in the community know you and that's how I came to know who you were originally. Um, yeah, could you just talk about kind of growing up and where you got, um, where you realized that you could do music, where you kind of discovered your talents and those kinds of things? Um, I feel like I'm still discovering that all the time. And I think it was when we got to Warren Township and they actually let me play an instrument because they wouldn't let me do it in the IPS. I didn't pass the tone test uh, to be able to play. So, but when I got to uh, Warren Township, you know, they let anybody play if they wanted to try it. And uh, I ended up doing uh, uh, playing the viola in the orchestra, which uh, I kind of muddled through at first until my pops uh, made me start practicing. But once he made me practice, um, after a month, I practiced the rest of, uh, you know, my high school, you know, from uh, middle school to high school and, and played in the symphony. So, you know, once I got started, I loved it. And it's funny because in a lot of your arrangements, you'll use string sounds and things like that. So was that where those, were those string arrangements you use today kind of inspired by that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, when, when I was playing in an orchestra, it was the most amazing feeling of being in an orchestra and you're playing this just powerful, moody music and you're a part of it and it's all going on around you. So I think uh, there's an element I'm always trying to recapture that even when I'm just by myself yeah. uh, composing. Yeah. And then, um, like, I remember when it, it was like using early sequencers, and I'm older than you, but keyboards with sequencers and like <coughs> when you layer a drum track and a bass track and, and, and like, I forget, it might have been like 10 or 11 realizing oh, that's how they do that, you know, and just from being fascinated. So what was your what was your first experience with layering instruments and sequencing and things like that? Um, 2001, um, I, I had a friend, and um, this is back when I roller skated, and he was the DJ at the rink. Um, and he was it was after the session was over, and he was playing, the, you know, these instrumentals. And I'm like, you know, and I finally noticed they had no words, but it sounded like, stuff I might hear on the radio, it just didn't have words. And, I, you know, I'm asking, I'm like, what, what is this? Well, you know, he was like, oh, they're beats. I made them. I was like, what? You made them? Like, and he was like, yeah, I, I did it on a, a game called MTV Music Generator. And I was like, like, really? You did this on a, a PlayStation game? And he was like, yeah, you ought to try it. And so I did. And that was 2001 to uh, – November or December of 2001, and I, I went and got it. And were you were you composing the track, like, start to finish, and then would somebody, like, would you mix it? or? Yeah, I mean, at that point, I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't know where I was going. Yeah. And so I did everything myself. I, I remember I had uh, my grandma giving me this little, I'm thinking it was maybe 19 keys, a Casio keyboard, so I would play uh, the riffs out on there and try to figure out what I was doing on that keyboard. And then I would go enter the notes on the piano roll, uh, with the PlayStation controller. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. And, um, so when did you, when did you realize, Hey, you know, I could produce, I could produce a singer, I could produce a rapper. When did, when did that, uh, when that happened? Well, I mean, I always flirted with it and for, you know, uh, eventually I moved up to a computer and started using FL Studio. I got a MIDI keyboard and equipment and all this other stuff. Um, and it was in 2011 when I thought 
I kind of hadn't been making, uh, you know, hadn't been composing music for about six months. And I had just turned 30. And I f- pretty much figured it was over. I'd never worked with an artist, uh, 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 a hip-hop artist or a singer uh, in my life. And I said, it, it must be over. And my cousin wanted, uh, my, my uncle wanted me to go set up, help him set up a studio for my cousin. And the next thing I know, I'm like headlong in producing people and, and, and working on music again. So it was crazy how that happened because I thought I was done. Yeah. Just, and I mean, was it just the, the, the forcing you to kind of figure it out on the fly, that whole process? Of- it did. Um, it ended up being, um, I had done all this studying over the years of, of production and mixing and all this, and I never, ever uh, actually applied it. So I recorded my first song over there. I produced my my first record. And I love my uncle, but that didn't work out. It was I was over there for, like, maybe three months. Yeah. Um, and then I took a break, and I got laid off in 2012, and then I started focusing on music again. Okay. And I, you've, I know you've had a number of interesting jobs. You know a lot about uh, auto repair. You were an auto mechanic for a while. A long time. Is that right? That was my career. Actually. Okay. Okay. And so you're just, so you're, it's kind of the, um, working on cars during the day, working on music at night for mm-hmm. many years. Is that sort of the thing? That, that was it. Um, and then roller skating at night too. So yeah. it was like a lot of, and I mean, I think people find it funny, like roller skating, but I was there three, three or four times a week. Is that right? And like I, competitive, like racing, and it wasn't racing. It was you'd have to go out to the rinks now, but they have adult sessions. Yeah. And uh, back then, back in the day, they had three different adult sessions. You okay. had a Sunday night, Tuesday night, and a Thursday night. Okay. And they started at nine a uh, nine p.m. and went to either one a.m. or two p- or two a.m. And so I was always there. And then maybe one other regular session. Okay. So, like, I, I have, you know, I'm single with no kids, so I had the, the time to go do all this other stuff and work a regular job. Yeah. So I have a lot of different experiences, I yeah. think. So, um, musician, photographer, so you have the you had the exhibit on uh, Indianapolis hip-hop uh, featured out at the uh, at the airport, Things like that. Where does photography enter the picture? So, yeah. so that happened in 2015. Okay, uh, when I was by this time, I was like really, really working with artists. I'm managing them um, at, at this point and producing and mixing and mastering. And finally, I guess I'm doing better. At, you know, I was doing better as a manager, so my artists are starting to get a lot of shows and. You know, previously, you know, it wasn't that often, but but now we need to get a photographer. And so, you know, we're getting these photographers and they just weren't getting the pictures that I needed. You know, as a manager, uh, you know, you're the promoter and you're looking, okay, how do I get more people to their next show? How do I get people to check out the artists? And I'm getting the pictures back and they're just these stoic pictures of them on stage behind a microphone. And I'm just like, this isn't cutting it. Like, I wouldn't want to go to something like this. I don't know. You know, it doesn't show a crowd. doesn't really show much going on. So I said I'll do it myself. I borrowed uh, somebody's camera for a month, uh, one of my OG's cameras, and I learned enough to get me in trouble, and then I bought my own. Yeah. Where So your, your current exhibit at the airport on Indianapolis Hip Hop, 
I know it's gotten a lot of attention in the media and everything. And one of the things that I like about it, and I'm, you know, I'm a casual hip hop fan. I can't say I'm a hardcore hip hop aficionado, but what I like about it is it reminds me of like, 80s hardcore punk in terms of there's like a there's a rawness to it almost a DIY quality to it and is that is that something that is that a is that a style that you kind of had immediately or is that something that happened more over time so I didn't really I didn't really know about the punk um, revolution and how photography was involved in that until after I became a photographer but it you know when I started looking at that it pretty much was the same thing uh, because I, I would go out there and I'm like, it was all this great stuff happening. And I mean, people excited about it. It w- wouldn't always be the biggest crowds. I'm not going to pr- sit there and pretend like um, everybody um, in the hip hop scene, I think has a, a legitimate shot of being a national artist, but there were some and whether they had a shot or not, a lot of them were very, very passionate and worked hard mm-hmm. uh, for what they were doing. And so that's what I wanted to capture was there's, there's so much passion and energy that, if you see this picture, I want people to feel bad that they missed out, that they weren't there at the show. Yeah, yeah. And now, um, and I think one of the artists you're best known for is obviously Pope Adrian Bless. But when now when you're producing a project, are you typically kind of not just overseeing the, the composition and the tracks, but the visual element as well? Like if you're looking at the artwork and things like that, is that is that likely your... So in the past, I have, um, I mean, there, there's been times when I, uh, I think I did, I did design the cover art for his last project. It got mixed reviews, <laughs> uh, the, the cover art. The project did pretty well. Um, but sometimes I get involved, sometimes I don't. I know for Eastern Conference, um, I hired an artist uh, named Michi Shakur, uh, who we ended up painting the mural on the Far East Side. Um, uh, underpass over on Pendleton Pike, but like I, I told him, hey, we want this cover art. And it's got to have owls, and it's going to be called Eastern Conference. And he just went wild and and got us like one of the best cover arts, like one of the most well covered, well known cover arts uh, in town for a while. Yeah. Um. Uh, so I, I do a little bit, but Pope is also an artist. He's a visual artist yeah. himself. Yeah. So sometimes he's. He may be doing the uh, the cover art to one of his projects here soon. Something you said a few minutes ago, and I want to I want to ask you to, if you could um, explain a little more. And that's you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of aspiring um, rappers and musicians will approach you, and uh, you know, for collaborations or things like that. What do you What are you looking for when people come to you and you're trying to figure out? You know, does this does this person have talent or does this person have a voice? Is this somebody I want to work with? What are, what are things that are there th- obvious things that catch your attention? What, what do you look for? Um, <clears throat> well, working with people in the past, cause I don't think I'm, I know I don't have enough time to take on any, any new people, but in the past I was looking for somebody that not only had the talent, but they had the drive and the emotional stability to handle it. And that's a big thing. Um, you don't always, in fact, you very rarely find all three of those talent, drive and emotional stability. And I, you know, I don't expect everybody to to have everything together, but the the music business, uh, even at a local level, it'll make you crazy. So if you can't handle it, um, early on and and I see like, you know, you've got enough problems where this is probably going to destroy your life. 
I don't want to be involved. Yeah. In that. Cause, cause I mean, and, and you've had many more of these experiences than I've had, but it's like some of the most creative people I've known and, and prolific people I've known have also been, um, difficult to work with, uh, self-destructive, mm-hmm. you know, prone to addiction. And when I think I, I'm, I'm a believer that we all have some certain addictive tendencies. I certainly do. So I'm not saying, but, but, is that by that emotional stability? Is that is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking at um, like like Pope, and and he's he's very open and honest about his his struggles with mental illness. But the way he approaches things, he makes sure he has a support system around. Yeah, you know, he's as 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 much as he talks about he's unstable, which which he you know he's. You know he's been medicated before. He t- he's talked about all that, but he manages it well. He he is very stable um, with that. But there's a lot of people that that suffer from some of the same ailments, and they may be worse, or maybe they're not as bad. But a lot of them don't manage it very well, and they go do just really ignorant stuff that look, I don't want to be dealing with. And and it's you know as difficult as you know as a manager, and you're investing in people even, you know, just with your time and energy and maybe sometimes money. Uh, and then to have people go do self-destructive things at the last moment or you can't find them, uh, you know, they're supposed to be doing a show and you can't find them and they're calling your phone looking for them and you can't find them. And, yeah, I, I don't yeah. like that. <laughs> I do. You know what? I want to play um, – I do want to. I want to ask you more about this, but I do want to play a clip just so anybody listening has a point of reference with your production. And we're talking about Pope Adrian Bless. Would um, I've got Locomotive and I've got Exodus. Which one would you want me to start with? Um, let's do Locomotive. It's okay. got a different sound. I'm gonna play a clip from Locomotive by Pope Adrian Bless, uh, produced by Wild Style, the producer. So that's Pope Adrian Bless. The song is called Locomotive, featuring Wild Style, the producer, off of the uh, Birdcage Sessions Presents uh, Thunder Games EP that's uh, just a couple of years old. So um, that track, I'm, I'm just curious. So Fruity Loops, mm-hmm. the, main, the main, your DAW that you mm-hmm. use, right? And then the, um, the synths, I love those kind of warm... What what uh, what uh, what synths were those? I think that I'm sure I used synth one. 
in that in that track. In fact, synth one is in a lot of actually probably most of my tracks I've ever yeah. done. Yeah, I had this is a whole other conversation down a rabbit hole, and we've talked about it a little bit, and I'm not going to take up all the time, but it's like um, we were talking about how I spent five or six years. Um, I'd save up and buy whatever this this VST synth that I thought I needed, mm-hmm. or the, I'd read an article about some drum um, drum uh, you know, drum machine that I that I thought I needed. And then, like, when you have that experience, you find out that one of your favorite tracks was produced on either freeware or right. cheap stuff, and you're like, and you're like, what am I, what am I even doing? You know, so so. Yeah, synth. Shout out to Synth One. It's a great tool. What are what are some of your other go tos that you use? Um, Hypersonic and uh, Nexus. Okay. Which I used to say for years I wasn't going to use Hypersonic or Nexus because everybody was using them, and I would literally I would hear everybody using the same exact sounds the exact same way, and I was like, nope, I'm not touching it. But uh, eventually I got it, and I was like, I set standards. I was like, I'm not going to use the sounds in the way that other people do. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, that like a track like that, uh, you do the, the mix, the mastering, all mm-hmm. of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're, so you're basically start to start to finish. Um, okay. The only person to touch the record. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now do you have, um, uh, with some of your, some of your artists like, um, and collaborators, Pope Adrian bless. Um, uh, once he, um, records his verses does he stay involved in the in the mix of the song so is it uh, somewhat like we uh, you know we give each other feedback and sometimes it'd be times when i you know he'll he'll say it uh point out things i'm like yeah i I need to fix that or uh or sometimes i'll be like hey i think we need to bring go back in and add this or take this out or switch this around so it's always a collaborative factor but he doesn't really sit there in the room with me while I'm mixing. Okay. So, and I also like the um, the part at the beginning, how it starts. Uh, the way we, we work really weird. So if he does, he's a, a, a almost like a jazz type uh, improvisation, especially on his live shows, but it doesn't always come through as much on the records. But the beginning part, uh, you know, where he's just kind of going through the little phrase uh, was something that he was uh, rapping as it was uh, at the end of it. And I, I looped it and, and cut it and, and added it to different parts because I just thought it was really dope. Oh, wow. um, how this is one of those, where do you find the time kind of questions? Because I think, I don't know, I think a lot of us, definitely myself that um, are inspired to create or write or paint or whatever the, the, um, the case may be um, struggle to get started overcoming, overcoming that, overcoming that initial, like, this is terrible. This is terrible yep. impulse. <laughs> and one, again, one of the, one of the things that I admire about you is you're very prolific. You know, you, you, you're, you're working on a lot of projects, but you stay very um, you're, you're always writing, at least in the time that I've known you always writing, always composing. Um, how do how do you, how do you get over that? Do you, do you experience that initial like oh, yeah. static friction? How do you, how do you get past it? Um, I just suffered through it, uh, honestly. Like, um, you know, this week I was making instrumentals, but, you know, before that, it had been a while before I was, I had been making anything that I, I thought, like, it was something I wanted to post. So I think you just have to struggle through it. And 
and you're going to make a, a whole bunch of bad beats before you make some some good ones. And then sometimes you get on a hot streak and you're just like, it doesn't matter, you know, when you fire up the equipment, you're on there and it's going to be not, it's going to be hot. And sometimes you're not, not, you just have to keep on until you, uh, you find the right lane. Do you, um, I know for me, I have to have a series of projects in front of me. So if I, if I was, if I was just, if I would, if you just said, Oh, just write some things, but I didn't have a a deadline coming up or things like that. I would just be spinning my wheels, like going through synth presets all night long, not actually (laughs) recording anything. You know what I mean? So how, how do you, how do you structure that for yourself to keep you um, starting and finishing? Well, the finishing part is different. (laughs) Um, If I can start, Nothing is really finished until we go record a record. So even even with the like the instrumentals I put online, like just the, the videos of them, those are just rough drafts. Like if if Pope or, or, or anybody else is going to actually use the song, we'll probably go in there and go do some things with the hi hats and like really trick it out. Um, but I think you know like I don't necessarily set deadlines other than. I'm going to start. Mm-hmm. And if I can start, uh, chances are if, if I keep on doing it every day or every other day, something good will happen. So yeah. that's the only deadline I'll, I'll set. That's a good, that's good advice. I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say like they're talking about meditation maybe, but they say just start with five minutes. And then if you go, if you go five minutes, you almost always go longer. Mm-hmm. I'm not an experienced meditator, but that, that what you said reminded me of that. Um, I want to I want to ask you about the community because you made a couple references to the music community, and at at what point? So when I became aware of you, it was just a few years ago, and there's this guy named Wildstyle, the producer, um, kind of um, responding to what's happening in the community, also saying some provocative things, <laughs> you know, you know, just to get kind of getting people's attention, but it was clear to me that here's someone who has a lot of relationships and is kind of talking about the the hip-hop community and the larger music community with some amount of credibility so and I know that didn't happen overnight so so how, how did how did that how did, how did you go from being an upstart producer to then having a bigger platform well I've always been opinionated oh. I'm shocked <laughs> I'm shocked <laughs> so uh, early on um, when I got back on on Twitter in, in 2012, I was just this loud mouth. And then I started um, engineering towards the end of 2012, like for more people. And so then I became the loud mouth engineer. Uh, and I had this whole, I have a whole SoundCloud page full of beats that nobody would ever use. And all the producers go in there and, and, and dissect them and bisect them and, and, and uh, talk a whole, whole bunch of uh, trash about, oh, this is weird or that. But they listened to every one I put up. So eventually um, uh, I worked with an artist uh, named Rico V. And in 2013, uh, I kind of executive produced the project. I didn't produce every song on there, but I produced the plurality of songs on there. And I recorded every one of them. And the project did really well. Like a lot of people covered it. Um, it, it you know, You know, for the city at the time, it was talked about. And so I became... I went from this loud mouth, loud mouth engineer now to a loud mouth producer that it was like, oh, okay, well he can actually do something. He can mm-hmm. make music and and from there, like people 
love me or hate me, you know, they at least know hey, I, I can do something. Yeah. It was, it was funny though. Cause when I first met you just, you know, a little over a year ago, I w- there was, there was a little bit of, this is wild style because there's, cause I don't think from your, from some of the outrageous things that you say, <laughs> um, and I know you, d- I know you have a point behind it you, to, to meet you. You're actually pretty, you know, even keel, you know, thoughtful and th- things like that. I can't be the first one to have like, to said made that observation, but yeah, I think, um, especially with Twitter for years, people didn't even know what I looked like. Yeah. Uh, and, and like before I started doing photography, I didn't go out to a, as many shows. So people would, uh, occasionally see me and not know who I was. And I wasn't going to tell you if you didn't know who I was. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I mean, I, I am a, for the most part, I am laid back except for when I'm not, I think I, I'm, I'm laid back. Um, for the most part, because I think that's the best way to get get my point across. But social media, you're in a just a gigantic mess, and you have to yell, and you have to you have to word things in a way to be provocative. Yep. Uh, because you know people come on on Twitter for just outrageous stuff, uh, and you know I mean you're competing with people cussing each other out, slandering wow. each other, porn, all of this stuff. Yeah. So you you have to you have to kind of cut through all of that. So you're you have a point of view, and and part of that point of view is that the music community really needs to advocate for itself. Mm-hmm. And what and and I have I have some suspicions of why that is. But what what's uh, you know why why do you, why do you believe that the the because a lot of your a lot of your um, conversation on social media is about the need for the hip hop community, but the larger music community to really unify and, and be its own best advocate. What, where does that come from? Um, I mean, you, you kind of see things work in, in business and, and every other industry uh, the same way. And I, I'll, I'll say I'm not, I'm not for everybody to, to go unify in some uh, kumbaya type of way, but I think like get together on business stuff. Like, you know, You've got, you want to put together a show, you want to put together a show, put together a show together. Um, you want to handle promo instead of spamming everybody uh, music links on, on Twitter and Facebook, go run some ads or get get with each other and figure out, go put together a street team and go out and and, and, and promote. Like just, you know, do things in a, a collaborative way because music is collaborative, but then when we decide we want to, actually go business, we act like none of them people exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet, you know, so for people who are very much, you know, I've got, I've got one foot, some people would say both feet very much in the mainstream. So I'm looking, so a lot of this I'm looking at is, is something, is something garnering mainstream attention. And you've had trees, which I think has, I mean, from my perspective as someone who, you know, whose day job it is to lead a mainstream business organization has has really increased the visibility for um, Indianapolis hip hop. It seems. I mean, do you, do you think? I mean, it seems like that's been a, a very much a step in the right direction. I think it's been a huge step. I think now, now some people pissed because they weren't as a part of that as they wanted to be. But for when you talk about mainstream, like before the news media, the news media would cover hip hop if somebody got shot or stabbed. You know, then they're going to run back the whole history of the event and everybody there and what happened. Treese was the first thing they covered uh, that I can remember that 
before it happened, and they were like they were touting this as a positive thing uh, rather than covering uh, uh, every once in a while when something might happen or half the time it wouldn't happen. It was just a, <laughs> the perception that something happened. So this was this was great. Um, you know, the news media covering hip hop intentionally in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I went to my first trees. So it was three. It was uh, you know. So I'm I was 41 because I'm 44 now. But I remember walking around saying, I don't know what I was expecting, but this is, if you had, if you had a young person um, from anywhere outside of Indianapolis, Chicago, or East or West Coast, even international saying, oh, I, you know, would I want to live in Indianapolis? I was like, I was just wishing that those people could parachute into Indianapolis just because um, it, was, it was a really friendly vibe. There are a lot of different genres of mm-hmm. hip hop within hip hop. And that's one thing I want to ask you about. And I know this is such a loaded question when, you know, when you ask this question of an artist, but what are, what are the different sounds right now that you think um, represent uh, Indianapolis hip hop? And, and what are, so I, cause some people listen to this might have very little um, uh, context, you know, for Indianapolis hip hop. And I, I, I don't want to like, you know, if I if I use like categories or genres, I know that I'm the wrong person to really talk about that. So, what do you think of when you think, of, and what should people be listening for if they if they want to discover in Indianapolis hip hop? Indianapolis hip hop is so eclectic that I can't. You know, it's been a complaint that we don't have our own sound, but I don't I don't necessarily know if that's true. I think there's some people that do sound alike, but then again, they kind of sound like other people, but. Like with Pope Adrian Bless, I don't really think anybody sounds particularly like him uh, because he does a lot. I mean, he was a spoken word artist. He won poetry slams and all sorts of stuff. And so he has a different element and dynamic in his music. But then you listen to uh, other people that that are uh, very well respected for their their lyricism and rapping ability like Sirius Black, uh, who, who sounds different. But you can see people probably listening to both of them. Uh, and then you have other people that are also have a lot of lyricism but sound completely different, like uh, Maxi, who yep. uh, runs a Nap or Nothing store. And then you have everything in between. I went one, uh, two years ago, I went with like a list of artists that my wife Helen and I wanted to see, and we discovered Cairo the Artist. Yeah. It's a great live show and a great album. And yeah. And then there's this. Um, Again, I don't want to get into the the pigeonholing and and the genres, but then there's a, a subgenre um, uh, or influence that we got uh, Clint Breeze in the groove mm-hmm. and Native Sons. So live, uh, you know, hip hop and, and and original compositions with with uh, original lyrics and melodies, and then uh, jazz live jazz instrumentation. It seems like that's a that's a branch of the tree too. That that is a branch and. Um and then, there, you know, there's several artists, you know, of course, Clint Breeze and uh, and, and Cairo also kind of brings that yep. type of uh, uh, instrumentation to yep. it. And then there's other people that, like, they add it in for shows, but, it, you know, they'll never have it on a recorded album. Like, yep. um, Sirius performs with a band sometimes. There's a couple people. Pope will uh, perform with a band as well. Um, and I think Maxie did one time. Yeah. But, I mean, that, there's a different element. Um to, to everyone, but Clint Breeze is is particularly he is a, a a drummer, and I would say a jazz drummer, but man, I've heard that dude play rock, yeah, uh, uh, 
every genre. It was one week I heard him play like three different genres. Yeah. So, but but he he brings a whole different feel, but uh, uh, but particularly jazz. Carrington hits very hard too. Helen and I found that out the the hard way one night when we sat like right by his <laughs> right by his set at the Jazz Kitchen. It was an amazing show, but he he hits hard too. Yes, he so he don't play. Right? <laughs> um, so. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to dodge the the hard questions because even with music, I know there's a sense. And if anybody follows you on social media, that I I, I want to see. I want to see if I get this right. That even though there have been steps forward, um, you know, um, uh, events like Trees have helped. I think um, unify the community more and more. There's still. Um, I think if I could, if I say, if I'm saying this right. Feel like there's still a lack of mainstream respect for not just not just um, Indianapolis hip hop, but for the level of creativity and artistry that we have in our own city. Mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate? I think that I think that's very accurate. Um, I think we focus so much of on, on the city being this sports uh, capital and auto racing, and yet music has been in the culture here for. Over a hundred years. I mean, you know, it, we were internationally known for jazz, you know. So why, why, you know, those people didn't, those people had kids and stuff. So music is literally in the blood here, and I don't think that that's been um, really pushed enough. Uh, and I, I think you know, like with the Midwestern culture, like we just don't think we we think music is too artsy. I guess that's right. And and we have. Um, there's a, there's a conversation that's taking place a lot um, in the mainstream today about how much should Indianapolis embrace its sports, you know, and I, I don't know. It's like I can see one scenario in which we really um, uh, embrace it but broaden it in the way you look, look at Nashville, Tennessee. And, you, you mm-hmm. like, like I respect what the Pacers are doing, and I, I think it's a great start by, by – um, highlighting Indianapolis artists before home games. And I don't know, I could see a scenario in which we treated those sports venues like the motor speedway and say, Hey, what, how, how can, how can these venues be, be um, stages for some of our best artists? But I, again, that, that might be pipe dream. What do you like? What I do mean, you think? I think, I think anything's possible. I mean, when you listen, like if you go to a Colts game or a Pacers game, they play a whole ton of popular music, and a lot of it is hip hop. Yep. So the music's already there. It's just that we're we're paying somebody else and giving them the opportunity to reach uh, the fans rather than than the people in the city. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I, I think this is a great step. I think it needs to to go even further. We yeah. we have all this music here. You know, ha- have them spend some of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, which I do want to, I do want to, um, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, the first phase of the music strategy is out there and, you know, you've been constructively very critical of some parts of music strategy. There's, there's no question about that. And yet, um, you know, we are trying, we, as a, as a, as a, as an organization and a, co- a coalition of community organizations are trying to get, um, others to plug into the talent that exists here. And um, I love, I mean, I love that idea. I think that's a great challenge is, is these sporting venues and others that feature music, especially hip hop music. Well, would, could they, could they move the needle a little bit and make a commitment to, could we inspire them to commit to featuring half or more, you know, local artists? I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I do the music history of Indianapolis. This is a great segue into something I've been dying to ask you about. Cause I haven't seen you since your, um, 
piece on New America was published. Um, and and for, for anyone who would want to check out that piece, it is the, the ethnic cleansing of Indiana Avenue. Um, that's, it's, a, it's hard for me to say, frankly, because it's, it's, it's a, um, uh, it, it is a uh, not good part of Indianapolis's history that we don't talk about uh, very much, in, in my experience. And you can check out, uh, uh, under Wild Style's name, uh, The Ethnic Cleansing of Indiana Avenue on uh, New America. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll set it up, and then I want to ask you a question. I moved to Indianapolis in 2001. I grew up in a small town in central southern Illinois. I went to college in the Chicago area. I lived out in the D.C. area for three years before I moved here. I really liked it when I moved here. Part of my experience being here was I didn't know a lot of people except for the people that I worked with, and I immediately met some people in the jazz community. And I am a pianist, but I didn't know a whole lot about jazz. And my first five years here, I was just learning everything I could about jazz. And I, and I discovered, it's like, what? West Montgomery's from Indianapolis. As we sit here, this is West, today's West Montgomery's 97th birthday. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Freddie Hubbard, you know, one of the greatest jazz trumpet players, and J.J. Johnson. And that there was a place where so many of these clubs existed and black-owned businesses, and it was really, you know, the place, you know, uh, and, and Ransom Place, Indiana Avenue plus Ransom Place, was this middle-class and upper-middle-class black neighborhood. Indiana Avenue had all these great music venues, and basically, and, and I would encourage people to read your, um, it's a long article, uh, a lot of research, I know, um, on New America, that basically that, through, through a series of moves, uh, projects, um, that much of that neighborhood gets decimated uh, in the 1960s and 70s. So the question is, what, when, when, I, when I saw that piece, I was like, wow. And then I actually looked at the, 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 the research that you did. I imagine it took a lot of time to do that research. What, what was your inspiration to delve deeper into that story? So this may be slightly controversial, but let's just say I was somewhere – and they were there was people patting themselves on the back about uh, giving money to help restore the Walker Theater, and some of the people uh, and people that facilitated, I'm like, well, you know, you're the reason why <laughs> the Walker Theater wasn't viable in the first place, you know, because the, the neighborhood got decimated. Um, and then doing the research. My family's from there. You know, if you read the article, you'll, you'll see that my family's from there. But I didn't talk about my other side of the family who worked over there. Uh, and, and my grandfather owned, uh, one of my grandfathers owned uh, Club 701. It, it had been the Blue Eagle when he bought it, and they switched the names and all this other stuff. But, you know, when I was doing the research, what I learned was that I didn't even know the history of Indiana Avenue. It was a lot bigger. It was a lot more communities involved and a lot more acreage lost than, than I actually knew. And so as I was doing the research and I, I have a weird way of writing. So I'm piecing stuff together and moving stuff around. And it wasn't until I got most of the way through the article that um, I decided to use the term ethnic cleansing. And I went and looked it up uh, just to make sure, because I'm like, well, this is a bold statement that I'm making, but I'm like, the research keeps on suggesting that that's what, what it was. So I looked it up, like all the different definitions. And I was like, this fits the definitions because this was a plan. People actually did know what they were doing. It wasn't integration, 
all this other stuff. And so that that's how the title ended up uh, being that. So um, what what were the what what did you find that was unexpected as you were doing the project? Because I think I think there's a there's a high level history that a lot of us know and that 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 it was um you know the the freeways didn't didn't the freeways um took out a lot of our indianapolis urban neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um and certainly the the um the preparation for iu what became iupui um was there but were there were there things that you uh you know stumbled upon while doing the research that you that you didn't know the big thing i think what one of the big things that really sparked the article uh, for real was when I found out there was a riot on Indiana Avenue in 1969. It was two days of rioting. And I said, well, you know, we didn't even riot when, when uh, Dr. King was, was assassinated. But they did, you know, and in a black community, and, and sometimes, you know, it's discussed in the white community that the black community here has never supposedly rioted. But then I found out, okay, that's not true. And, and one of the few times that the black community rioted it was when, when you know, the the black Harlem of, you know, Indianapolis was under attack. So I, it, it made me go further. Um, I had a, a, a professor at IUPY hand me some research that I didn't know existed. Um, not research, but um, um, archives. So, so the 1970 IUPY memo in there confirmed everything that I, that I thought was that this is a plan and they knew exactly what they were doing and knew how bad it was. And I remember some of the documentation you posted online, you have, um, uh, different leaders of the community, uh, um, who are, they're almost predicting, um, um, and, and say almost, almost predicting the effects of the, of the decisions they're going to make in terms of, um, uh, assembling the property mm-hmm. and, and uh, tearing down uh, uh, buildings, that that kind of thing. So that is that. So you, you have you have memos and mm-hmm. thing, things like that that became part of the public record. Sorry, and, and it was I was surprised about the memo. I think the I, I was surprised that it got put in the into public, uh, you know, into the archive. I, that would have been something that I would imagine. Um, I just would have figured they would have made sure it got lost. Like it didn't make it there because it was just so, so damning um, uh, about what, you know, that, that they knew. And it, it, it particularly pieced a lot of things together because before uh, I was going to have to do the argu- uh, the article on circumstantial evidence, but the, the memo was literally like the smoking gun. Not only, you know, is all the circumstantial evidence and, and the statistics but also that you knew what was going on and, and you know, that you, you, you continued on, uh, you know, by that time it was, it was too late anyway, but it was just, um, the research was, the research, um, I like doing research, so that wasn't a big deal, but emotionally it was, it was times when I just stepped away from the computer and went out on a walk because it yeah. was just too much to, yeah uh, to read at once. So I think it's, it's a, it's difficult to read, um, for me, um, and, and yet it feels, so it hit, and it hit me on a couple levels. It's like one, it's like, you almost feel like, um, we can't, we can't really move forward in reconciling our communities in this city unless we all, uh, can agree on the facts. 
And there were some facts in there that we really don't talk about that in my, you know, in kind of the mainstream and the business circles, we don't talk about. We know bad stuff happened. We know stuff, there were decisions made by our city, by people in our position, people in similar positions mm-hmm. to me that if they had to do it over again, there's a sense that you wouldn't make those decisions. But the, um, the starkness, you know, of, of how many people got displaced and were uh, uprooted from their neighborhoods and things like that um, is, is pretty shocking. Um, and I think, too, for me, it's like I've been lucky to be in positions where I was working for the city government or I was working for state government. And what's, what's, what's I think, a, a good reminder about that that article brings up is you, you know, when, like, if you're working at the city, you can get really invested in a project and you believe in your heart that it's the right thing to do, but you can get so laser focused on, and that project becomes everything, you know, mm-hmm. and you're so, you're so convinced of the nobility of your intentions that you, there, that you can blow past, you know, I mean, these are factors you can blow past engaging the community members because you're so, and I, I've, I'm, I mean, I'm just being honest, I've been, um, guilty of this, especially when I was younger. It's like so, so convinced that, that I know the right thing to do because I've reviewed all the data and I, I think I know what's best for this city and I'm so invested in this project. And, um, I don't know, it's just, um, when, when I think it's too a lesson when, when, um, the, the people in power are not communicating with the people whose lives are going to be the most impacted. I don't know. I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think, I don't know another way to say this, but you never have all the data. Right. Uh, when, when they were making those decisions for Indiana Avenue, things were. There was an intense poverty over there. Things things were a mess, but they also didn't under they didn't have the data to understand that it was a mess because they caused the mess, uh, and that shipping them out wasn't going to fix that. It, they weren't going to magically um, have access to the financial system uh, that was continuing to n- deny them somewhere else it was you know uh problems that that you know white supremacy in the city had caused indiana avenue to be uh not what uh not living up to the potential that they wanted it to be so and and um obviously um when you talk about white supremacy there's a again a uh, a negative part of america's history that was driven by uh, policies that definitely disadvantaged people of color, and in in with respect to Indiana Avenue, um, the policy of redlining that happened in Indianapolis, like what happened in most other major cities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a connection there to where literally um, uh, black residents of Indianapolis could only buy homes in certain neighborhoods and could not buy homes in in other areas, and there's a sense that redlining in our city actually accelerated the poverty in certain neighborhoods because people's property values weren't appreciating. There were all kinds of incentives for you to move out of certain neighborhoods. Is that, is that part of the that, part, part? That's part of a the huge thing. And also um, it accelerated uh, the criminal element. Uh, and I'm a few, I plan to write an article about that, but I think I'm a few years away from that, but I, I have, <laughs> I have legitimate stories of people that um, because of redlining, they were the banks, uh, they were the philanthropists because they were criminals. You know, they did a lot of criminal stuff, but they had money available to fill a market that um, 
you know, blacks were locked out of. So they, you know, if you're uh, running illegal gambling houses across uh, the black community, then you have access to capital. You therefore loan that capital out, or maybe you give it to, uh, you know, you help pay for uniforms for, for the sports teams or, or this and that, or intramural sports. And, and that, that was a big element. And that also drew the ire of, of the city leaders about uh, the amount of crime on, on Indiana Avenue. But at the end of the day, it, it was nurtured <laughs> uh, through bad policy decisions of, of racism. When, when, uh, so my, you know, my experience, especially the last two to three years in this job, it's, it's impo- like, it's impossible to talk about, it's, it's impossible to talk about my job at the Indy Chamber without talking about my sort of personal experiences too, if you forgive me, because it's like, as of three, four years ago, you know, I've, I'm 40, I feel like I've been doing this for a while, and I'm like, you know, I know a lot of, I, I, know, I know a lot of people in community organizations, I know the people, like the, the neighborhood that I live in and the adjacent neighborhoods, for instance, have been going through a lot of change and thinking, yeah, you know, I'm living pretty close to the edge. And then the more that I understand um, what's happened over decades, the more that I've come to uh, appreciate why growth in poverty has happening in our city. I have these experiences like, okay, I'm nowhere near the edge, you know, this, this, and, and so people like me who maybe were unaware of, um, a lot of the causes of, um, of poverty in our neighborhoods and things like that who are on this journey, there's a, you can get sort of hopeless, you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to compare my hopelessness as a fairly privileged white person to <laughs> true, like real hopelessness that exists in our community. And I don't, I don't want to um, make that comparison, but there, it is easy to kind of throw your hands up in the air and be like, oh man, that we're like, we're, we're deeper in this than, than, than we think the divide is deeper than we think. And yet, um, you have been a part of some real kind of bridge building in the communities. Um, and I think about um, your recent work um, as a, uh, as an ambassador for, for central Indiana community foundation. Um, and, and can, could you, uh, can you talk about what, what that, what being an ambassador is um, and, and, uh, how that, and you know, and, and what does that, what does that mean? What does that mean for you in terms of what you're doing in the neighborhoods every day? How does that, how's that impacting your life today? Um, that's a, it's a complicated role. I think a lot of it, I was talking to a friend yesterday about it and it feels like I'm a translator a lot of times. Um, because as much as, you know, we say America, we're all together, which is true, but culturally it's a lot of different cultures and even though even people that speak the same language aren't really speaking the same language. And so sometimes I feel like I'm a, I'm a bridge between community and the language and how they see things um, uh, to the Central Indiana Community Foundation and, and sometimes other organizations. And, and oftentimes I think on both sides, the community often – overestimates the knowledge uh, of organizations. And the organizations almost always overestimate the amount of information they're getting back from their fundees. You know, just because a you're funding a social service agency or this program or that program doesn't mean that you're connecting with any more than 10% of that community at the at best and and oftentimes 
uh, with social service agencies, they depend on them for all the information. But people that go into social service agencies are usually that's when uh, somebody goes in there when they've exhausted their social capital. There's nobody else to call about your lights being off, about you being sick, or all of these horrible things in in your life. You've gone to a social service agency because there's nobody else you can call, and you're willing to go to a stranger to get help. And so you you tend to be you have a narrow view of the community because those are only people that you you know you typically see. Uh, people that don't have that issue don't tend to come in there, and and so. You know, with Central Indiana Community Foundation, I think they realized that, that, you know, they had blind spots. It You know, it is a predominantly white institution, you know, uh, staff-wise and, and board-wise for, uh, you know, for its 100 years of existence. And they realized that, okay, we've got blind spots, and we, instead of assuming that we're going to ha- figure it all out, why don't we get some, some eyes and ears on the ground and, and help us explain Yeah. What's going on? And, and in fairness, you know the um, everything about the that you're observing about the long history of Central Indiana Community Foundation, Chamber of Commerce, even more so. You know, I mean, you look at you look at the who was on the board, you know, 50 years ago, and even even today, you know, we've made a lot of uh, progress in getting more diverse as a board and a staff, but still have a long way to go until we look like Indianapolis. And and so, what what are you what? What changes do you see that can happen? Because now you've been you've been in this role for a couple of years now, right? Um, a year, a uh, one year. Okay, one year. okay, one year. And and as you look at um, what, because I, I know to change to change systems takes a long time. To change hearts and minds takes a long time. What what are you, are there are there things again? I'm I'm thinking of the person. Imagining a person who's becoming who's, who's getting more educated on Indianapolis's history, and it's like, oh my God, we are the, the, this divide is much deeper than I thought. Um, and so, what what are are there tangible things that you're seeing out there that 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 can happen that are within our grasp? Um, I do. I think some of it is not even stuff that's directly, let's say, a, a, a CICF a program. But uh, Brian Payne initiated this um, this series of gatherings where we would sit and um, listen to the Seeing White podcast, which, let me say, I didn't know if I was going to get through that first one. It was, it was some wild stuff. And I had not listened to the podcast before. I didn't even know it existed. And so it was, you know, mostly – the ambassadors and then a lot of other people that Brian Payne had invited. And it was some really difficult conversations and difficult listening uh, with that podcast. And and I didn't think I was going to learn anything out of it, to be honest with you. And I learned a lot. Um, Uh, Yeah. So again, uh, seeing white podcast, you can find it uh, on, you know, any, any podcast platform. Yeah. Can you talk, can you talk a little more about that? Like, so what, what, one of the great things that happened was that people started getting together outside of that podcast and around matters of social justice and, and devising plans to change the system or enact things that, that were more fair and equitable. So it actually inspired people to, to take action independent of, of CICF. Like, you know, some of those people went back and was like, hey, how can my organization, here, let's go have conversations and, 
And, and, and so, and those conversations are still ongoing and some of those plans are still being made. And that's, uh, and, and ironically, that was something that, that, that Brian said, if we can just get people to go, uh, uh, go through this and, and go back and make changes. Uh, and, you know, I'll be honest, I love Brian to death, but I was like, yeah, I don't know about all that, but he was right. It worked. It's almost like my, the way that I look at it, you know, business people, um, have to be very outcome focused. You are very outcome focused as a musician, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, and you have to, so there's a, a big part of your life where you are. There's a relational thing that Brian talks about a lot that it, again, my mind, my, I'm changing. I think it's, we do have to become very, we do have to be outcome focused, but I know a lot of these outcomes we're not going to change without the relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a small thing, but you know, uh, you know, um, Imhotep Padisa and Paulette Fair from Kepper Institute spoke to 150 business owners at one of our events. You know, it's a small thing, but again, that was a, you know, it's, it's, if you could, if they're, they're kind of infiltrating our, yeah. you know, our work and our conversations. And I hope we're, we're returning the value and, and, you know, you start to, you start to think if you could, if you have hundreds of these little things happening in a community, then maybe, and which, which are part relational, maybe over time, you know, you start to move the needle. I don't know. I, I think so. Um, and I know this is going to sound crazy. I don't want to get too political. No, no go ahead. This is uh, a- um, Jim Merritt. So I, I will say like his history of, of voting for Indianapolis was, he voted a certain way and it did not help all, all people. But one of the things, you know, like recently that's gone on with some of these votes where it seems like the state house is, trying to take over direct running of the city of Indianapolis, Jim Merritt voted no to a lot of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And he wouldn't have done this years ago because he would have been, you know, some of the stuff he was all for yeah. uh, years ago. And I really think that is something because of the relationship he had with some of his staffers, some of his African-American staffers that took him around and said, no, here, here is what yeah. – what this looks like when you do this and when you, when you do that. And I think it, you know, I'm not going to say that everybody um, is ignorant, but I think he was ignorant and he actually uh, has changed his way somewhat. I think, I think also um, Indianapolis is still a Metro of 2 million people, but compared to a Chicago, it's not. And then it's, it's still, it's been a younger city in Mm -hmm. terms of the growth. And I think, I think maybe what you're referring to is some of our grassroots leaders are realizing they've got a lot more um, direct access than they even thought. You, you, you know what I mean? Like the ability, like it doesn't matter. Even like if, if somebody moved here um, and they've only been here for a year, you, you've, you've still got for the most part an ability to at least develop a relationship with a leader or CEO. Now I, I realize from my position, I can be maybe a little naive about that in thinking that you've got unlimited access, right? I get that. But, but I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, you and some of your colleagues um, and the community ambassadors, people, you know, through the um, music community were able to directly impact the dialogue in the last mayoral election in a way that I haven't seen before. Is that. And I, I think I, I put that a lot on social media. Um, like amplifies some people's voices. I don't know. I don't know 
if that was possible in the past. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I struggle with, and I think this is, I'll probably be, if I'm, if I'm doing this for 20 years in this job, which I probably won't, but, um, if, but, uh, is that, um, you've said it, Brian Payne has said it, many others have said it, that the, the, the relationships are important, but it's got to amount in the sharing of power, people who didn't have power getting power, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and the financial power is a form of power. It's not the only form of power. Political power is not the only form of power. What are, what are the practical ways that, you know, if somebody's listening to this saying, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time thinking, thinking about this right now from my job or my place. What are, what are the, when you, when you talk about the sharing of power, cause ultimately the conversation goes there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, how, how do you, how do you, how do you think of that? So when I look at, at, at the sharing of power, a lot of times you look at what's best in, in your wheelhouse. And, and I, I look at like the current thing going on with the, the state house in the city. The state legislature, uh, since most of them are Republicans, are supposed to be about smaller government. Worry about smaller government and let, you don't want to delve down into Indianapolis. It's a mess down here. Let people that are actually here all the time handle that. And if Indianapolis is doing well, then the rest of the state's going to do better. You, you're going to, we're going to, maybe next time, not that I like Amazon, but maybe next time Amazon will pick us when there's less crime and violence and less poverty and Indianapolis is a better place for all people, you know, not just white people, but minorities and everybody's doing good. That's going to be a place that, the, the tech people want to move to the, the brightest minds in the whole world are going to want to live in a place like that. Yeah. And I, I think getting people to understand that sometimes giving up power is a good thing. Yeah. You don't want all the responsibilities. Sometimes you're, you're, you're stuck trying to make decisions that you don't even understand what the hell's going on. Yeah. There was a, um, so uh, as you know, when, when our organization went through the Brookings inclusive growth lab and, you know, for us, it was a big deal. I know I get a lot of, I got a lot of feedback from the community saying, well, we wish it had covered this and this and this, but still for us, it was a major, it was a major, um, event in terms of feeding back to us, our data on the economy of Indianapolis that showed we're, we're not as good as we think we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Indianapolis is a great city. If you've got a college degree, especially some level of technical training, you've got all these jobs available to you. If you And yet, if you're born in poverty of in, in Indianapolis, your chances of getting out of poverty are lower now than they have been in 30 years. And that was like, that's like a dagger for, for me, just as someone who cares about the city, but for anybody. And the one of the bombshells from that report, this is going to seem so basic and you're going to laugh, but is that um, uh, it, it, there, well, A, there's a point of diminishing returns to growing your industries based on people moving into your city. Mm-hmm. It's always good. You know, you want, we want to, I think, I th- and I, I think we want to be a city that's open and, and welcoming to others, especially people from other countries. But not only is, is helping your own neighbors, your, in, your, in your own residence, uh, become more educated and self-sufficient, not only is that the right thing to do, it's also a much more cost-effective strategy. Now, if I said this out there, people would say, you sound like a bloodthirsty capitalist, but I, I do, I'll say it, I do say that to sound a little bit provocative because I'm like, this is not, this is not charity. Exactly. This is a, this is a better, if we can move the needle on poverty 5, 10, 15%, 
we're going to see the returns and your 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 company might not see the returns in a quarterly earnings report but in a matter of years you know so so it's like so we're all going to do better over time I, I don't know but that but that something I, you said just makes me think of that i mean i think that needs to be sold now i mean from a moral uh position i've staked out my you know i've staked out where i'm at but but i can i, I like to be able to justify it from a financial position and you know some of the stuff I see going on here. I'm like you're cutting off the the nose to uh, despite the face. Like you know if if everybody in this in the city were making more money and they were doing better, you would be more like the economy would be moving better. Uh, you'd be making even more money. You'd be exporting more. Like just, just everything would, would would work a lot better. You'd spend a lot less of the public safety budget. <laughs> Uh, on the stuff that we're spending it on, you'd be able to have, which then uh, means you got more money to spend it el- other places, maybe to to make this even better enticing city for tourism and all this other things. But, you know, when you have the level of poverty and inequity that's going on, you know, which, what we're getting is violence. We're spending a, a, a ton on all these different, uh, trying to put more police on the streets, more police programs, more crime prevention programs. Uh, you, you know, we're always complaining about, uh, you know, somebody was saying something about the, the homeless people were costing the city this much in tourism. Look, I'm not here to argue the, uh, uh, the moral aspect of it, but, hey, maybe if it was less, if people were doing better and we were taking care of those people, they should get that money right back. Yeah. <laughs> so This is a good, I mean, it's a challenge to the business community too, maybe, Maybe if we made a very, uh, maybe if we made more of a um, big statement about how we value people who need the help, need the mental health um, services, need the addiction treatment, and how we value those people, maybe that would be, you know, a great economic development strategy. You I, know? I, I think all of that. I, I mean, I look at, I look at with transportation, uh, you know, some. Uh, you can get into, you know, oh, you think it's a boondoggle for, for your tax dollars, even though I know for a fact that the gas tax uh, doesn't subsidize these roads enough, so I'm paying for it whether I drive or not. That's right. But the the reality is, okay, well, maybe you still see it as a boondoggle, but what about economic development? Why we have such high turnover on jobs is because somebody hits a pothole and breaks a rim. Yeah. Uh, transmission goes out, anything happens, they're likely not to be able to get to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll struggle on for for a couple of weeks or something, and then eventually they just get, it ends yeah. up, they get fired. This is the, I mean, I, I feel like this is the, maybe the central issue of our time in terms of the the business community, and, and I'm, I'm partially responsible, um, waking up to the fact that we, we, we don't need to move in this direction, and by this direction, I mean um, helping, doing more to help low-income, moderate-income communities for charity. Right. That's all. That's almost like an old world. Um, we need we need to do this because the whole community is going to. We we actually, and again, this is controversial. We need to do this for our own self-interest, I, I even if it's so. longer-term self-interest, not like quarter, not a quarterly earnings statement, long-term self-interest. So, to that, I have a question that I want to ask, and that is. I'll start. So it's two two sides. The first part is, 
what you you've you've witnessed a lot of you're you're at the front lines of a lot of these discussions about change and like maybe it's real estate development maybe it's mass transit expansion uh things that are going to cause physical changes in a community i i've i've shared with you before I've stumbled in this area more times and made more, you know, rookie mistakes and missed handoffs in this area that I've learned a lot. I'm still not an expert. So what do you wish um, corporations, institutions, real estate developers understood about engaging with the community? And then, uh, then after that, I'll ask you, what do you, what, what, what do you wish grassroots leaders and, and communities understood better? So I'll start with the corporations, institutions, real estate. Corporations, institutions, I think they need to, worry about building a relationship. Um, and oftentimes uh, we put to get these plans together uh, from the, the institution and the corporate standpoint to engage community. But the reality is that you just, a lot of times they just need consent. We already know what we want to do in your area. And we're looking for the people that are going to say, let's do this, do this and that, because we've got a plan, a program, a product to push to address all those, and we're just trying to find the right people to get in the room and say, hey, these are the community members that said we need to do this and that, and this is what we're doing because we've got one to, uh, product one, product two, product three, and that's not um, – I don't know how much longer that's going to uh, gonna work. Uh, on the activist side, I think uh, they're starting to be more educated that, okay, we know what's up. Uh, and, and, and people are more willing to fight, uh, fight this than before because, uh, you know, thanks to the Internet and everybody talking to each other, we've seen the effects of this for the last 60 years of, of these different programs, and it's always more of the same, and it's not people thinking outside the box or, or truly engaging the community for solutions. And a big thing with institutions is if your product does not involve – Supporting uh, existing residents, um, it's a bad product. Mm-hmm. That I mean, a write off. I mean, maybe it makes you money for now, but it's going to cost. It's going to end up costing the city uh, later on when you don't include residents. When it's not supporting uh, uh, the residents that live there, what you're doing is a lot of a lot of cases it causes uh, displacement and gentrification. And unless they move out of Marion County, this is still our problem. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, in my experience, um, I almost think uh, companies, institutions, real estate developers, this this process in any neighborhood is going to be a bit messy by nature because mm-hmm. the residents aren't going to, the residents themselves are not going to agree on everything. Exactly. Right? We, we definitely do not. You, you just have to, you just have to suit up for that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah. you're going to, there's going to be some fights. Um what you have to avoid is uh, finding every resident that agrees with you because that happens. And sometimes, yep. you, oftentimes those people are in the minority of the neighborhood, but you can find enough to put together yep. a plan. Uh, and it it will go to the same way that, you know, that I was saying. It, it'll be a big mess. Uh, people will be, ultimately people will be hurt by it. And sometimes the institutions end up getting hurt. Sometimes yep. it doesn't work out the way they thought. What do you wish the, the grassroots leaders and the community members under uh, understood better? Um, I think that I think they need to understand. Let me not get myself in trouble because I have to. I'm more. I'm accountable to to them. <laughs> You're part of the establishment, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, 
I think we have to make sure that we're not caught up on outrage and uh, over words and terminology more so than we are. Actions. Oh, wow. This is so, oh, <laughs> sorry. You just hit one of my, uh, sensitive spots. Um, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been representing an institution before, maybe talking to a group of people, representing city or a chamber or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I just used the wrong term because I can read it on everybody's faces. <laughs> and that conversation is effectively over. You uh, know what I mean? And I heard one, um, I heard one grassroots leader basically say, Hey, you know, we, we have to exercise patience from our end and not vilify the person cause he or she didn't use the right term. Assuming it's the, the, um, Oh shoot. They call it, um, uh, assumption of good intent, yeah. you know, until, until you can lose, you know, you can lose that. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but our assumption of pure, of, of, of pureness of intention, you know, which some people would say to me, oh, you're being naive, but you know, when you don't, when you don't yet have trust, um, I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? I, I mean, I look at it this, that way. Like, uh, we're all problematic. Um, I've said things, or done things and had people in the LGBTQ community just about cuss me out for it, even though other people in the LGBTQ community said it was okay. Like if we get caught up on semantics all the time, you sometimes you end up throwing away people that actually have uh, good intent over simple slips of the tongue yeah. or, or ignorance to, to, to how that looks to the, the new woke crowd or, or people that are, uh, uh, underst- have a new understanding of things. And then I think sometimes we gloss over institutions that are quiet, like, like some of their, some of, some of them do bad work, but you never, they never end up in any, any controversy because they don't talk to anybody. They don't get on there and engage. They don't put themselves in a position to go make a mistake, but they are sure tearing up things. <laughs> And I think we have to we have to look at the the difference between those. Yeah. So one area this is one area that is of of high sensitivity for me, and I uh, I want to I want to mention this, and I don't I I, I don't know what I'm, I'm eager to hear what you think. Um, in like so, as someone who represents an institution and is trying to take that interest institution through change to be more relevant to the community, there's a there it's almost like an unwritten rule, and that is. If, if I'm, whether it's a, it could be a, a, a political official, could be an elected official, could be a community leader, that if they, if they blow up the chamber on, on, in the media, then we just disengage. You know what mm. I mean? Cause it's, and it's not a, it's not, it's not even a vindictive thing. It's just unspoken. It's like, oh, they blew us up in the media. Okay. We're not going to talk anymore. This, those rules, I'm convinced, um, I'm like, I'm trying to change that view within our own organization, you know, because, and, and here's why. So like, we have almost 2,000 members as an organization, so I am very constrained by nature. Even yes. if I'm being wild, even if I'm going, even if I'm pushing those constraints to the max, I still have to be very constrained, right? You, you, as long as this is my, as long as, as long as I've agreed as my day job to lead the indie chamber, I will not be, I will not be highly, highly critical of an elected official unless there's been some kind of a breach, you know, like if it's like a, a near crisis mode, right? Because mm-hmm. I, because I can't just get up and say that. Other people, though, as they should, you know, some community leaders that don't have those constraints, they should be able to speak truth to power, right? Mm-hmm. And there have been times um, 
you, you know, other people that will be very outspoken on social media, you know, a couple times when you're, you're kind of, I'm, I'm trying to think of exact instances, but it's like when, when you're, you're doing your research and you're like, I don't know, this might, looks like a bit of conspiracy here. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then I'll be like, oh, we probably, I don't know. I don't want to be anywhere near this right now. I need to disengage. Even if sometimes you're, you know, if I think you're right or if I think you're wrong, but I, I find myself kind of rewriting those rules right now, right? Because, yeah, those are maybe the norms of our type of organization, but those are not the norms of people in uh, communities that don't have power. You right. know, does that make any sense? I don't know. A, a lot of it is, I think, I mean, particularly like with my social media, it's only been in like the last year and a half or two years where, I mean, before I could say anything I wanted and nobody gave it down because nobody saw it that, you know, they could, that understood, you know, that, that had power. And I think, you know, there's more people that watch it now. So there's been times I've said some, some wild stuff and end up with a text message. I was like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. Cause I mean, you, you have, you have a platform, you know, you are, you are a representative of a community foundation too. And so, yeah, that's like, you kind of, you, we've said it before, you've kind of got a foot in both camps now, which must be weird. It is, it is really weird. Um, um, I can tell you, I love CICF because, um, you know, they've been very adamant about uh, we do not control our ambassadors. Um, there's been times when I've been involved in protests that, that some of our, uh, some of the uh, elected officials probably didn't uh, care for me to be involved in. But, uh, you know, the position of, of, of CICF is that, okay, he's his own person. You know, he's responsible for, for what he does. Uh, and not us, and <laughs> so uh, I, I like that. But I mean, it, it's a different, it's a different world now, mm-hmm. for sure. There, uh, you've, you've been you've been incredibly generous with your time, and I don't want to take up a ton of time. But there are a couple more questions that I would oh, yeah. I would like to ask, and and this might be um, a subject of another discussion if you'd be up for it. Um, I have. Um, been realizing through our work on inclusive economic growth, specifically trying to be much more impactful in low to moderate income communities that um, I, I, people like me really need to take time to better understand the basic conditions of people living in poverty, the psychology of people living in poverty. And what's scary about it is um, you're talking about families that live in some cases three blocks from my house. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like some far off. I mean, you know, for those for those of us who live in the city of Indianapolis, um, you know, we there there's still the, the the poverty is is fairly dispersed in Indianapolis in different parts of the city, and 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 um, uh, can you talk about? I guess if you you know if you're talking to somebody like me, if you're talking about somebody who's maybe in the mainstream of the business community. The, the common misunderstandings or, or things that, that, that you've experienced through your, your work and, and, you know, neighbors, friends, people you know that, that a lot of people just don't understand? Uh, well, let me say I've been poor. <laughs> In fact, I'm, I'm sure I'll probably meet every guideline uh, of being poor right now. Uh, but I have everything I need, I, I believe. But I think the biggest thing about poverty is basic psychology. And, and I, I said this at a community meeting Monday, that basic psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and every other model that's similar says that you need basic things. You need food, water, shelter, 
clothing, et cetera. Um, and then the next up is love and all this other stuff. And at the top of that is self-actualization, which is education. And so, uh, so oftentimes business people, and this is either party and like, you know, non-political because I, I fight with Democrats. I fight with Republicans on this education thing. Education is wonderful, but you got to understand that Maslow's hierarchy of needs said that they're worried about the stuff on that lower, uh, that base level before they ever think about education. In fact, there's a couple other levels before we even get to education. So that goes for the kids, and it also goes for the parents. You wonder why the parents aren't aren't engaged much about their, their kids' education? Well, it's probably because they're struggling at one of those lower levels as well, and that's what poverty puts people in it. It puts people in tunnel vision because I've been in there. You're like, and you, you make bad decisions. I haven't made, I don't think I've made as bad decisions as other people have, uh, uh, in poverty, but you make bad decisions because that's the only thing you can see is your immediate need rather than, than long-term. And, and being in a position where you don't know how you're going to pay your rent, you don't, you don't think about anything else mm-hmm. beyond, okay, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent right now. Mm-hmm. What is about to happen? You know, what am I going to do? You don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think people have to understand that poverty Yes, poverty is a mindset while you're in it, but when you take people out of it, that gives them a chance to to think about things uh, just like everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And you talk uh, regularly too about mental health and the the destigmatization of mental health, and and the it looks like you know move um, nationwide. I'm, I'm I'm sure it's not happening fast enough where. Uh, mental health gets more integrated with what we consider to be basic health care. You know, the, I mean, the some of the stats that you've shared with me just about uh, um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and things of that nature uh, in the community and the, the, um, how commonplace they are, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. It, it is, and I, I think we, um, we'd have a much more sa- safer and productive society if we if we treated that as a, um, like a major thing as much as more, even more so than just regular healthcare, because you got to think the the mind is what controls the body. And so when you have people out here that are not in control um, out here, you, you have, you'll have a more violent society. You'll have uh, people out here that, you know, that are homeless. Like I, I think if anybody wants to understand the effects of mental illness on the homeless population. And I'm serious about this. Go, um, go conduct your business for a day or two right down there at the central library in the cafe. And you will see the effects of mental illness. You'll realize that, uh, you know, hollering at, at, at homeless people to go get a job that ain't going to work. It's deeper than that. No. Um, I want to, um, there's so much more that I could ask you and you've been very, you know, thanks, thanks for taking the time on no this. Problem, man. I do, I do though, um, maybe to, to end it on kind of a musical, um, a musical reflection. Um, you know, we, we've been, we've been working with you and others in this coalition trying to bring, you know, we talk about, we talk about building bridges across people of different socioeconomic statuses. I think, you know, one way to do that, it, it's, it's not, not the only way, but music helps build those bridges. And we've been, um, we're at the beginning of the journey to try to bring these different musical genres and musical, uh, communities together. Are there, um, 
and you've been at this a lot longer than I have. Are you, are there, are there certain things that you hope is going to come out of this, this music strategy, but more broadly, this effort of like, you know, bringing, bringing different communities together? Um, I do. I, I mean, what I would like to see happen would be, um, equity. And I, I would like, I think, uh, if you put as much, um, resources or give people the amount of opportunities that you do for, for some of the cla- more classical music genres, if you did that for hip hop and all the different sub genres and stuff that's, that's modern, I think Indianapolis would be a powerhouse. I think, I think we would attract the attention, uh, of the world. Yeah. Um, so artist recommendations you've made, you've made several, are there, are there others that come to mind for people? So, for people who really want to kind of immerse themselves in different, um, uh, and, and you know what, maybe I shouldn't say this because if anybody, if, if more than 10 people end up listening to this, people are just going to get mad that we didn't mention them. <laughs> We've mentioned, <laughs> mentioned a lot of great, <laughs> I started to go down that road. I'm like, I don't know. I do, I do want to play, uh, before we close a quick uh, clip from, from your song, uh, Exodus. Cause you mentioned, um, you know, Pope Adrian bless. He covers a pretty wide range, yes. um, within, within hip hop, um, uh, you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play the play a clip from the track. This is Exodus by Pope Adrian Bless, featuring Wildstyle producer. Lucifer the truth. I'm a human sewage in the shoe. Two and two together, full four of mine. Got a fake to pull four of mine. I'm AJ with the styles clash. Kevin Norris with the power bomb. I'm Roman Reigns with the spearhead. I'm Dean Ambrose with the power drop. Shawn Michaels with the screw job. Working your practices. Waco, Texas, Massacre with the spin. It's my new job. I'm here to eliminate all you sucking niggas from the picture. Boy, I feel to my new bars. Every day is just a genesis. Know it's lineage and pimpership. Whoever was heir to the throne, I can jump up before that. 87 Chevy shit, take the Porsche back. Seven weapons in the whip, be a water rat. Independent, stressing no contract. Got a couple features for the free to help a nigga. It's alright. Double cross me one too many times. Mental patience with me and they all strapped. God granted me serenity. You cannot challenge divinity. Quoted as one of the best ever. Tracked the shin and got me many feet. Reincarnated this to the Atlantic and way before Jesus was your pain. Y'all ain't really got a choice. Hieroglyphics in my voice. Hieroglyphics in my voice. I messed up with the rock chain. J Elect with the rock chain. J Cole with the rock chain. God body on the rock chains. I don't never go to church until my Wait, I just uh I, I just so appreciate the time, and it's, I, I think this will probably warrant, you know, if I if I keep doing this, it'll warrant another conversation, maybe going going deeper into one of these, um, you know, uh, kind of urgent issues facing the community. But um, I, I I would like to say for um, for, and I'm thinking of young people in particular. Do you people like you've built up a platform now? You've got. A, a role within um, uh, a community foundation for young people that are trying to get into this work through maybe on, on different paths. Do you find yourself giving advice to them about if, if a young person comes forward and says wild style, um, I want to, um, I, I want to get more involved, but I want to make a real contribution. Are there things, are there, is there advice that you find yourself giving young people about how to, how to do that? Yeah. I mean, a little bit. I'm still figuring it out myself. Uh, uh, what what I do tell them uh, to do is think more broadly about philanthropy. Uh, it's not always running the soup kitchen. Uh, sometimes it, it's supporting other people 
and your community and getting things done um, for itself. I mean, that's a huge thing. Charity is great, uh, but philanthropy is more than just uh, giving things out. It's support and, and, and supporting each other, and, and that's a big thing. Uh, you know, people can think, well, I, you know, I'm not the Mother Teresa type. Well, that maybe that's not the type of uh, – maybe that's not your role for community work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sure appreciate the time and I always just enjoy these conversations. I always, I always learn a lot from it. And, um, again, I mean, you, you, um, you, you've, you, you're, you're shining a light on some really ugly parts of our city's history, but yet I think anybody who spends time with you also realizes that you're invested in this because you see the possibilities and that definitely, that definitely comes out, um, you know, through these conversations and through your work in the community. So just, uh, appreciate your work. And uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man.